If you could please find in your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you pick up, picked up a Bible on one of the tables as you came into the sanctuary this morning, that'll be on page 961. We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Before we read, the elders have asked me to remind you that today is the day we're collecting a dollar for missions for our brother Will Smith. Once a month, we ask all of the members of the church, for every member of your family, to donate just one dollar to support a mission cause uh, for, for one of us that, uh, that is pursuing. Will Smith is planning a trip to Japan, an exploratory trip to see what the Lord is doing in Japan and how Will himself might be used of the Lord there. So we encourage you to remember the dollar for missions this morning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is excluded who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And then turn to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of God. Yeah. Well, it's a privilege to preach to you this morning, especially on a special Sunday like Resurrection Sunday, like Easter. If you're a guest with us, please welcome. Please make, I hope you feel welcome, and I want to extend my welcome to you as well. We've been making our way um, as a church through the Gospel of Matthew, but we're going to pause that for this Sunday and just reflect on the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what that means for us in our lives. The, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is the most known and celebrated miracle in the history of the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's the most known and celebrated miracle in the history of the world. There's always been consensus that in many ways, the resurrection of Jesus is the core issue of the Christian faith. And it's not more than that. It's the core issue on which the whole crux of history turns. History is literally affected by this event in such a way that our own time is marked by it. 
We live in 2016 A.D., marking that after the resurrection of Jesus and the time before it as B.C. before. There are several people that highlight the importance of this. I just want to give you just a few people and what they have said about the resurrection. Thomas Arnold, who was a professor of modern history at Oxford University over in England, said the following, quote, no one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ Jesus died and rose from the dead. Bishop B.F. Westcott said, quote, Indeed, taking all the evidences together, it's not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. John Locke said, quote, Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. Billy Graham said, quote, The entire plan for the future has its keys in the resurrection. Martin Luther said, quote, Our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection, not in words alone, but in every leaf in springtime. John Stott, famous Christian author, said, Christianity is, in its very essence, a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. William Lim Phelps, a Yale professor, said, quote, In the whole story of Jesus Christ, the most important event is the resurrection. And then Benjamin Warfield, a Princeton professor, said, quote, The resurrection of Christ is a fact. The question then becomes, and our text says it, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's not speculation, it's fact. It's historically verifiable fact. The question becomes, what difference does that make in our future, in our past, and in our present. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is three things. I want to talk about the result of the resurrection. What came as a result of Jesus rising from the dead? And then secondly, I want to talk about a rationale for the resurrection. In other words, I don't, I don't believe that everyone here is convinced that it even happened. So I want to give you a historical rationale for it, very briefly, but I hope to at least whet your appetite with that. And then thirdly, and most of the sermon will be devoted to the relevance of the resurrection for how it should affect our lives right now as we wait for the future coming of our Lord Jesus. So let's start with the result. I want to start with the future. I want to start with the the end. I want to start with this great and glorious future that awaits us as the people of God that Paul talks about here in his first letter to the Corinthians, the passage that Jason read for us. So if you have a Bible, open it. If you have it on a phone, pull it up. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look briefly at verses 20 through 28 to get a picture of what's coming as the fruit of Christ's resurrection at the end. And there's two things I want to point out here. There are two main results of the resurrection of Jesus. And they are first, a fully restored humanity, and secondly, a fully restored universe. Okay? A fully restored humanity and a fully restored heavens and earth. Let's first of all look at the fully restored humanity. We see that in verses 21 through 23. Paul writes, For as by a man came death. That's talking about Adam. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 3, he brought death into the world. There was no death before his sin. For as by a man came death, by a man 
Jesus Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. So what's clear from this verse is that Jesus came to fix what Adam failed. Where Adam failed, Jesus came to fix. So whereas Adam brought sin into the world that led to death, Christ comes and brings righteousness and resurrection into the world, which leads to life again. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die. You want to know why everybody dies? Because everybody's in Adam. We're all born in the genealogy of Adam. And therefore we're born, we have a birth certificate, and we're born with a death certificate. Not literally, it's not, that'd be kind of cruel. Hand it to the mom, here's your birth certificate, and here's the death certificate, because that's certainly going to happen as well. But it will. It will happen. We are born with a death certificate as a result of Adam's sin. But notice the good news. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Those who are in Christ will be made alive. So the all there is not talking about every single person in human history. It's talking about the all who are in Christ. Verse 23 makes that really clear. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So it's those who belong to Christ, who are in Christ, who will receive the resurrection from the dead that Christ himself received. Now in Genesis chapter 2, going back to Genesis for a moment, you remember that when God created man, he called him a living being right? And that was after he joined the dust, the body, the physical matter that he used to create the body of Adam, and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, Genesis 2-7. So he was not a living being until he had both material, that is physical, and immaterial spiritual components. So thus, the essence of what it means to be a human is not just the spirit, but a spirit that's joined with a body. Your body does not merely house the real you. It is as much a part of you as your spirit is. So death is an abnormal condition because it tears apart what God created and joined together. God intended for our bodies to last as long as our souls. When God sent Jesus to die, it was just as much for our body as for our soul. He didn't come just to save your soul. He came to save your body. He came not just to redeem the breath of life, but also the dust of the ground. When we die, it's not just that our real self, believer, goes to the present, into the present heaven and our fake self goes to the grave. No, it's that part of us goes to the present heaven and part of us goes to the grave to await our bodily resurrection at the return of Christ. We will never be all that God intended us to be until body and spirit are joined again at resurrection. So what is going to be the nature of those new bodies? Well, Anthony Hokema writes, quote, there must be continuity that is between our body that we presently have and our future resurrection body. There must be continuity, for otherwise there would be little point in speaking about a resurrection at all. The calling into existence of a completely new set of people, totally different from the present inhabitants of the earth, would not be a resurrection. So our resurrected bodies will be the same bodies God created for us, but there will be, they will be raised to a greater perfection than we, will, we have ever known. Think of it as a significant software upgrade, 
right? Don't we love that? Get that new software upgrade on, on our phone or on our computer or something. Well, at the resurrection of Christ, for us as believers, our bodies are receiving a significant software upgrade. Same operating system as they've always had, but with a significant, significant upgrade. So Christ's post-resurrection body, you remember we get the glimpse of this in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell us the story of Christ's life in the New Testament. Christ's post-resurrection body gives us a window into the nature of what our resurrected bodies are going to be like as well. When Jesus was raised from the dead, you remember he didn't leave his body behind. In fact, after his resurrection, what remained? His scars remained. John 20, verse 27. He ate fish, John 20, 12. So he was able to take in food. He bodily ascended to heaven and he will bodily come again. And guess what? According to Philippians 3, 20 and 21, that at the return of Christ, our lowly bodies are going to be transformed to be like his glorious body. So that's the good news. That's that's one of the results of the resurrection is our resurrection, that we would get our body back in a glorified way that would be free from sin and free from death and free from decay and fixed in righteousness and life. But there's a second result of the resurrection too, and that is that the whole earth would be purged of sin and evil. See, some of us think of redemption far too narrowly. We think what Christ was doing on the cross was just for people. Are you kidding me? That blood was just enough to save a multitude that no one could number? Do you know how valuable the blood of God's Son is? It is such that evil and sin can be purged from the entire cosmos. The power of Christ's resurrection is enough not only to remake us, but to remake every square inch of this universe. And it will. God's final purpose for you is not to have your soul or spirit floating around with some sort of with or without your body in some ghost-like mansion in the sky with a bunch of angels playing harps. No, his purpose for you is to raise your body from the dead and to make it new and beautiful and healthy and strong. And his final purpose is not to take you away from earth to spend eternity in heaven, but to make a new heaven and a new earth where you will live in happiness with him and all of his people forever. Now, there's probably no better human author. There probably is. I'm over-exaggerating a little bit. But but Randy Alcorn, when he writes at the end of his novel, Safely Home, and he pictures what this great final day is going to be like. But before I read that, I want us to read the rest of our text in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pick it up at verse 24, because we've talked about a fully, restore, sorry, a fully restored humanity, but now look at what Paul talks about with a fully, fully restored earth. He says in verse 24, Then comes the end, that is, when Christ returns at his coming. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, so mark it, Jesus is coming back to destroy some things. And it's, it's the rule and power and authority that exist against God. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So when all things are subjected to him, then the Son 
Jesus Christ, will also be subjected to him, that is God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that's Jesus, that God may be all in all. So what's going to happen is the Son's going to come back, make the whole universe right, and then transfer the kingdom that he purchased to God the Father. He's going to sit on the throne with his people forever. That's the picture of 1 Corinthians 15. Now let me read you a less inspired. That's inspired. This is not, but this is a beautiful picture of what's going to happen after Christ has come, destroyed death, destroyed enemies, purged the... And Revelation pictures this. He's coming back on a white horse with a sword in his hand and king of kings. He's regal and he's coming to kill. He's coming to rid the earth of evil and and death. He's not coming like a manger, quietly, a little baby. He's coming back as a fierce, conquering warrior. And this is after the battle's been waged and all is left. And here's what Alcorn writes. Just listen. Soldiers dropped their weapons. The crippled tossed their crutches and ran. The blind opened their eyes and saw. They pointed and shouted and danced, throwing their arms around each other, for each knew that any now left on earth were under the king's blood and could be fully trusted. The king gathered children upon his lap. He wiped away their tears. The sound of a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouted, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. All eyes turned to the king. The entire universe fell silent, anticipating his words. I will turn the wasteland into a garden, the king announced. I will bring here the home I have made for you, my bride. There will be a new world, a life-filled, blue, green world, greater than all that has ever been. The shadow lands are mine again, and I shall transform them. My kingdom has come. My will shall be done. Winter is over. Spring is here at last. A great roar rose from the vast crowd. The king raised his hand. Upon seeing those scars, the cheering crowds remembered the unthinkable cost of this great celebration. Warriors slapped each other on the back. The, the delivered hugged their deliverers, enjoying a great reunion with those once parted from them. The multitudes innumerable began to sing the song for which they had been made, a song that echoed off a trillion planets and reverberated in a quadrillion places in every nook and cranny of the creation's expanse. Audience and orchestra and choir all blended into one great symphony, one great cantata of rhapsodic melodies and sustaining harmonies. All were participants. Only one was an audience, the audience of one. The smile of the king's approval swept through the choir like fire across dry wheat fields. When the song was complete, the audience of one stood and raised his great arms, then clapped his scarred hands together in thunderous applause, shaking ground and sky, jarring every corner of the cosmos. His applause went on and on, unstopping and unstoppable. Every one of them realized something with undiminished clarity in that instant. They wondered why they had not seen it all along. What they knew in that moment in every fiber of their beings was that this person And this place were all that they had ever longed for and ever would. And that's how the book ends. And that's how our story ends, believer. So that's the result of the resurrection. A restored humanity in a fully restored earth. And you might be thinking, you know what? That's That's just too good to be true, man. You... I'm serious. You must believe in unicorns too. 
You know, really? Like, really? I mean, seriously, like that? I mean, that's what you picture the end of time like? Some of you here are probably skeptical of that reality. I mean, it's like you want it to be true? Like, yeah, I wish it was true, but I don't, I don't really find Christ's resurrection to even be really historically valid. I mean, of course the Bible's going to say it's a fact. Well, here's the truth about that. J. Warner Wallace said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So everything I'm preaching this morning is either not true, and it's of no importance, and you should just go out here and head to lunch and take care of yourself and try to get through life the best you can, or it's true, and it's of absolute infinite importance, and your whole life hangs on it. And you should not play with the message. The resurrection isn't a pleasant myth. Either it happened in history and we must bow our knees in worship, or if we didn't, we are to be all people most to be pitied for believing such nonsense. Tim Keller says, The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like the teaching of Jesus, but whether or not he left the grave. That's what it hangs on. It's not whether or not we find his teaching attractive or like it or appreciate it. It's whether or not he killed death. The earliest documents, Luke 24, 3, Bible says clearly when they went to the tomb, he did not find the body of the Lord, Jesus. Luke 24, 3. So let's talk about a rationale then. We've seen the result. We've seen the glorious future picture. Now, let's give a little bit of rationale for what could happen here. There are four possible things in my mind that could for them not find the body of Jesus. One, his enemies stole the body. Now think about this, that if they did, and they never claimed to have done so, but they surely would have produced the body to stop the successful spread of the Christian faith in the very city where the crucifixion occurred. Remember, Jesus' disciples did not go to some obscure place when they started preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. They stayed in Jerusalem. All that had to be produced was the body of Jesus to cut that nonsense out. As Paul Althus says, the resurrection proclamation could have been maintained in Jerusalem, could not, sorry, have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. But they couldn't produce the body. All the enemies of Jesus had to do was produce his body. And then case closed, but they didn't do it because they didn't have it because it wasn't there. Second, his friends stole the body. All right, they really wanted this to be true, that Jesus had died on the cross and all their hopes, the disciples were fo- who were following him, they wanted, they wanted it to be true, so they stole his body. And that was an early rumor in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. So why would they admit that the tomb was empty unless the evidence was too strong to be denied? Dr. Paul Meyer calls this the positive evidence from a hostile source. What he means is, is that in essence, if a source admits a fact that is decidedly not in its favor, then the fact is genuine. And what happened was the, the, the friends of, the, the, what happened is that you, you look at these friends and, and the, the New Testament acknowledges that perhaps they stole it. They stole the body. But is that probable? Think about that. Could they have overcome the guards at the tomb? More important, would they have begun to preach with such authority that Jesus rose from the dead knowing that he was not? 
Would they have risked their lives and accepted beatings for something they knew was a fraud? Why did 10 of the disciples willingly die as martyrs for their belief in the resurrection? Well, you say, look, we watch ISIS. We see people on the news. They're killing themselves. They're throwing themselves into Brussels airports. They believe it's true. Why wouldn't these disciples do the same thing? Well, listen, there's a major difference here, okay? The difference is that people will often die for a lie that they believe is the truth. But if Jesus did not rise, the disciples knew it. They knew it. Which thus, they wouldn't have just been dying for a lie they mistakenly believed was true. They would have been dying for a lie that they knew was a lie. And that's the difference. They would have known it. But they didn't, they didn't die that way. Because they knew it wasn't a lie. A third possibility is that Jesus was not really dead, but only unconscious when they laid him in the tomb. And so he awoke. He removed the stone himself, as a normal person, by the way, which the Bible accounts that no human being, let it alone in a small army of people, could take away overcame the soldiers, and vanished from history after a few meetings with his disciples in an upper room in which he convinced them that he was risen from the dead. And then he went off the scene. Even the foes of Jesus didn't try that line. (laughs) Even the enemies of Jesus knew he was obviously dead. The Romans saw to that. The stone could not be removed by one man from within who had just been stabbed in his side by a spear and spent six hours nailed to a cross. So the only other option then, historically speaking and logically speaking, is that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what he said would happen. It's what Jesus said would happen. It's what his disciples said would happen and did happen. And it's what our text says happened. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And we see it up in in the earlier part of the chapter. If you look up in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. Look, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is what Paul's message was, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul says, and when he's writing to the church at Corinth here, he's like, hey, I can give you their names too. Go talk to them. Like, I'm not just talking about people that, like, you can literally go talk to these people. They had cell phones. They just text them. Just ask. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Jesus wasn't trying to keep this a secret. He was appearing to people and demonstrating the validity of his resurrection, especially to those who were closest to him but not just to those who were closest to him because he also appeared to 500 again. So that's a rationale. And there are plenty of other arguments for the resurrection. And my, my main point this, uh, this, during this sermon was not to um, do an exhaustive apologetic, a defense of the faith for, re- for the resurrection of Jesus and to prove that it's historically verifiable and all that stuff. That's not my point. But I do, I do want, I think, I think Christianity gets a bad rap for not being a rational, intelligent faith. Like, I'm not interested in a faith that doesn't answer all my questions. I had a lot of them before I was a Christian. And good Christians should have a lot of questions. Jesus invites those questions. He's not challenged. Christianity is not a thin, wimpy thing. Bring them. Bring them. 
There are satisfying answers. The only thing that will keep you from receiving them is a bad heart. That's it. It's, it's the corruption of sin on our humanity. That's the only thing that would keep us from receiving. Not the rationality or logic or intelligibility of the Christian faith. All right, so that's a rationale. Now, let me spend the next 20 minutes or so just encouraging you, believer, and, and inviting you if you're not a believer yet. Because you can get in on this. That's what's great news about the resurrection is it's available still. This is, what, this is why Jesus has not come back. To allow you to respond, to hear this morning on Resurrection Sunday about his resurrection and to respond in faith and obedience. All right, so let me give you four blessings, four relevant aspects of the resurrection for our print lives. All right, here's the first one. You get a fresh start. You get a fresh start. Don't we, don't we need a fresh start? I mean, not just once, but like over and over again, like we need a fresh start. Well, the resurrection gives us that. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible tells us that if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, that new creation language here, it's not just saying if you're in Christ you got a new start. It's not just saying that. It is saying that. But guess what? It's saying more than that. It's saying that if you're in Christ, you're a part of that new creation that's coming. You know that whole thing that we talked about in the first point about this fully restored humanity and this fully restored new heavens and earth? Yeah, you get that. You're already a part of that. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. He's part of the new creation that's coming. He's a new person. The old is gone. The new has come. Those who believe in Christ have, get this, already been resurrected. Colossians 3.1, since then we have been raised with Christ. Listen, when you, by faith, believe in Christ... When your trust is transferred from yourself to Jesus, when you experience regeneration and a new birth, you become a part of the future world that is coming, and you are already resurrected. In a sense, you will never be more resurrected than you already are. Your body is already headed for glory. At the moment you receive Christ, it's already there. It's already on its way. It's as sure as Christ leaving the grave himself. So we get a fresh start. And guess what? Guess what the... What is the identity that God gives us when we transfer our trust? Listen to this. Listen to this. This is who God can be for you. And believer, this is who God is for you. But this is what God can be for you. Don't you want this said about you? These are all texts from the Bible. You are accepted. You're loved. You're you're forgiven. You're a child of God. You're a friend of Jesus. You're saved by grace. You're chosen. You're complete. You're redeemed. You're renewed. You're cared for. You're blessed. You're healed. You're eternal. You're a new person. You're a masterpiece. You're an heir. You're a temple. You're an example. You're declared not guilty. You're not condemned. You're right with God. You're led by the Spirit, living by faith. You're being transformed. You're freed from the Lord. You're victorious. You're an overcomer. You're a co-worker with God. You're a workman. You're one in Christ with other believers, and you're part of the church. I mean, that's what we get. Who does that? He in Christ, man, that's all I want. That's all you can have. That's you. That becomes your resume. That becomes God's disposition toward you. It's a fresh start. I invite you to receive it this morning. Mark it as a day, March 27, 2016. I received Christ on Easter Sunday morning. I'm a part of the new creation. I'm raised together with Christ. And I'm all those things.
you can have it. Second, not only do you get a fresh start, but you have a bright future, a really bright future. Matthew chapter 5, one of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the what? That's your inheritance. You get the earth. Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham is that he would be an heir of the world. An heir of the world. That's our inheritance. 1 Corinthians 3.21, all things are yours. See, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's trying to sort out this division going on in the Corinthian church, and he's, they're all saying, well, I'm... You know, I like Paul more, and no, I'm kind of a Peter guy, and I like Apollos. And he's like, what, what, what are you talking about? This is just men. All things are yours. Why are you boasting in these little people like, hey, I follow this guy. Hey, I really like his theology. Hey, I'm more inclined to this. Like, no, it's like, no, I really like his preaching more. I mean, he's really cool. No, it's like, what, what are you talking about? You get the whole world. All things are yours whether Paul or Cephas, all things are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So guess what? Here's what happens. When we believe this, when we believe that we're going to inherit the earth, that all things are ours, that we're an heir of the world, we live with an optimism and a hope because our future is bright. John Newton shares a funny story. Perhaps some of you have heard it before about a man who was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. He was getting ready to have a million dollars or so given to him. All right, so he's on his way to New York to get an inheritance. And his carriage that he was riding in, this is an older illustration, okay? So imagine you're going, oh, let's modernize it. You're going to New York, okay? You live close, so you're not flying. Or say you do, you fly in, okay, and you get a rent-a-car. Or say your real car's there, because the rent-a-car, you know, you probably wouldn't care as much about. But Say it's your car, okay? And it's a brand new car. You got it real nice, okay? So you're driving it in to get this million-dollar inheritance, and all of a sudden you get in a bad car accident. So just think about that. You're on the way. You're on the way. Police officer shows up, and you're just, you're just angry. Damn, man, daggone, man, I can't believe this. Ah, my car. Look at this. It's like, hey, man, where are you headed? I'm going to New York. I'm trying to get there. I'm, I'm an inheritor of a large estate. Really? So you're getting some? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how much is coming to you? Ah, a million. million dollars. The police officer is like, what are you talking about, man? So here's how, here's how let me just read the statement of, of Newton. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. My wife and I have learned to use this on each other. If I'm in a particularly savory mood, she will say, carriage broken this morning, your carriage broken, carriage broken. But see, that's, listen, if you just get cancer, all things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. I mean, we're able to endure the pains and discomforts of life. I mean, we're talking about, you know, physical issues, emotional troubles, family issues, job, money, relate. I mean, all the difficult stuff that comes in our lives. And it doesn't have to be a cancer diagnosis. I mean, it could just be, hey, my car broke down. Hey, 
you know, something, the pipes busted in the house. Hey, something happened here. Hey, this relationship got ruptured. Hey, you know, just any number of things that just put us, get us down in life. And it can be the smallest things. I mean, we can walk in, like me this morning, walk in. Every single one of my ties got stains on it. That's why I don't wear ties. That's why I don't even like wearing this right now. It's hot. I'm uncomfortable. I want to stretch out a little bit. But I mean, it's like, it's like, is that really a huge thing? It's like, $25 to clean five shirts at dry cleaning? Wow. I mean, just all this little stuff, right, that just, that just sends us over the edge, gets us upset, or just whatever. It's like, are you sick? Carriage is broken. Carriage is broke. I mean, you are the inheritor of the universe. Get over yourself. Get over myself, Mark, so you have a bright future. Listen, Romans 8 promises us that if you're in Christ... Your bad things turn out for good. Your good things can never be lost. And the best things are always yet to come. That's the Christian story. Your bad things are never just bad things. There are always, if you're in Christ, there are always bad things that God is turning for good. And your good things, the truth, the best things about what God is doing in your life, those things will never be lost. We'll talk about that in a second. And the best things are always yet to come. So we have a bright future. We have a fresh start. we got a bright future. Third, we have a meaningful life now. We have a really meaningful life now. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. that Jason read for us. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Isn't that great? How do we know that? How do we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain? Because Christ's labor in the Lord was not in vain. Jesus' own labor, the fact that he left heaven, came to earth, was born, lived, died, raised from the dead, all of that was not in vain. And we know it wasn't in vain because God raised him. 1 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that he was justified in the spirit. That's, the language, that's literally what the word says. That he was validated, that his work was given the stamp of approval by God because God the, God the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Richard Gaffin says, as long as Jesus remained in a state of death, the righteous character of his work, the effect of his obedience remained in question. In fact, it was implicitly denied because there he was, he's laying in the grave. Consequently, the eradication of death in his resurrection is nothing less than the removal of the verdict of condemnation and the effective affirmation of his righteousness. In other words, God said, amen. That's what that amen, let it truly, let it be so. This is right. Amen. And that's what happened. See, Jesus wrote a check for us on the cross to pay for our sin. But guess how we know the check cleared? Resurrection. That's how we know that the check cleared was through the resurrection of Jesus. So if we are in him, that just as Jesus works and what he was doing in obedience to God and the life he was living was not in vain, so God will see to it that our lives are not in vain as well. That's why Paul encouraged them along those lines. This means, believer, listen to this quote from Bruce Milne. This is encouraging. He says, Every kingdom work, whether publicly performed or privately endeavored, partakes of the kingdom's imperishable character. 
every honest intention, every stumbling word of witness, every resistance of temptation, every motion of repentance, every gesture of concern, every routine engagement, every motion of worship, every struggle towards obedience, every mumbled prayer, everything literally which flows out of our faith relationship with the ever-living one will find its place in the ever-living heavenly order which will dawn at his coming. That's just, I mean, that's an illustration of your life is not in vain. God knows your deeds. And according to Revelation 14, 13, our righteous works follow us. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15, that our works also pass through the judgment and whatever is gold and silver and precious will come through with us. That's why Moses prayed in Psalm 90, verse 17, that God would establish the work of our hand, that he would make it such that the work that we devote ourselves to would not be vain. The things that we do would count matter for eternity. And they're not the great things that the world said. They're the simple things of t- resistance of Satan and pendant and children and loving engagement and worship and struggling in obedience and fighting in prayer and working hard at our callings and giving ourselves in sacrificial care for others. That's the kind of stuff that matters to God. Not whether our names make the New York Times bestseller list or whether we get a Grammy. So that's the third one, a meaningful life now. And then finally, fourthly, a great mission. So we get a fresh start because of the resurrection. We get a meaningful life because of the resurrection. We get a bright future and we get a great mission. Listen to this. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus means the certainty that God has fixed the day. We don't know that day, God does. But God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has appointed, Jesus. And you want to know how you can be sure of that? Because God raised him from the dead. John chapter 5 reminds us that some will be raised to a resurrection of life, that is, believers, and others will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. Everybody gets resurrected. Everybody. But some of them will be resurrected to a resurrection of judgment, and some will be resurrected to a resurrection of life. And just so you don't take my word for it, turn with me to John chapter 5, and let's read the text ourselves. John chapter 5, here's what Jesus says about this. Let's start at verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So we can rejoice with our sisters this morning, with Lisa and Kim, that they've, that's, that's their testimony. They've heard his word. They've believed in Jesus, and as a result, they have passed out of judgment, and they've passed into life. So truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, verse 25, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. Sounds like Acts 17, doesn't it? Because he's the Son of Man. Verse 28, 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all, all, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, don't be confused about that. That is not talking about good works getting you into heaven. It is talking about a life that produced good works because that person was in union by faith with Jesus. Okay, so Jesus talks like this all the time and he weaves in these things, but you have to take the whole teaching in context. It's that now good works do matter because they verify the authenticity of faith. Where there is not good works, there is not faith. So that's, what Jesus is, that's why Jesus can say those who have done good will enter life. It's not on the basis of the, the fact that they did good, but it is because they did good. All right, but the basis, the foundation of that is not their goodness but it's Christ's goodness. It's Christ's work. So there's the, there's the mission, brothers and sisters, that we are part of as the church. We have this great mission. Guess what our mission is? Proclaiming the gospel, loving others, caring for them so that by grace they might come out of one category into another category. That they might get out before it's too late of this resurrection of judgment category and into the resurrection of life category. See, when, we're, when we are going through our lives, brothers and sisters, this is who we're rubbing shoulders with every single day in this community. We are rubbing shoulders with people who are right now either facing a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. And so there needs to be an awareness of that as we go throughout our lives. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. We've never talked to a mere mortal. It's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taking each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Now what C.S. Lewis is saying there, sum it up, is that we are rubbing shoulders day in and day out with eternal beings. And so therefore we need to be aware that God has called us to this mission. The only hope is Jesus. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised to life, who is seated at the right hand of God. See, they're going to face condemnation unless Jesus Christ dies in their place for their sin and is seated at the right hand of God to intercede for them. Romans 8.34, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, the only way we're going to help people get out from underneath God's wrath and transferred into the kingdom of heaven is by preaching the gospel and reminding them that Jesus is the one who delivers us from God's wrath. And I want to encourage you this morning, because I know, I know, I know it's hard. People's hearts are 
hard and we are unloving and unengaged and it's just hard being on mission with Jesus. It's just hard. I want to encourage you this morning that the resurrection means that when you open your mouth and you talk about Jesus and you declare the gospel, there is resurrecting power in your words. Because there's re- this is what Jesus did. He was, re- listen to this, you say, okay, Pastor Mark, I get, I get what you're saying, but you don't understand. Man, people just, they won't repent. They won't repent. Well, Jesus was raised from the dead so that they'll repent. Listen to Acts 5.31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance. Anybody who repents is given a gift of repentance by Jesus himself. They don't just generate that within themselves. Jesus Christ gave them that gift of repentance. So our hope does not rest on someone's ability to repent. Our hope rests on the power of the resurrection of Jesus to give repentance. You say, well, they won't be born again. You know, you've got to be born again. They've got to choose it. Well, guess what? One, 1 Peter 1, 3, by his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, and who's he? The person? No, he's praising God. Because God is able through the resurrection to raise people to newness of life. You say, what about the Holy Spirit? Don't they need the Holy Spirit? Yes, and Jesus rose from the dead so that the Holy Spirit could be released and operative in the lives of people. Acts 2, verse 32 and 33. This God, Jesus God raised up of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit which he has poured out. So the Spirit is, through the resurrection, repentances can be released, new birth, forgiveness of sin, the Holy Spirit. So as we engage with people, we don't rest our hope on a person's ability. We rest our hope on a God's sovereignty. And that's our hope in engaging the mission. And the reason why we can engage the mission that way is because Christ rose from the dead. It's a fact. So let's go with confidence, brothers and sisters, from here. Go with a fresh start. Go with a bright future. Go with a meaningful life and join Jesus on this great mission. Let me invite the worship team up as we close in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you laid death in its grave, that your life was a perfect life. Your life was a life lived in absolute obedience to your Father's plan that your life was an indestructible life. And we thank you that through your conquering of the grave and through your conquering of death, we are now released from our graves and our grave clothes can fall off and we can walk in newness of life. Father, thank you for raising your son from the dead. Thank you for validating him. Thank you for vindicating him. Thank you for justifying him. Thank you for showing the entire world that yes, he is your son. Thank you that you did this in history, so this isn't some myth or fable or fairy tale. Thank you that you did it in in a a real place on this real earth 2,016 years ago. And the works have been going forth since then. The fruit of Christ's resurrection, the results of his power and authority have been being released. And we are in this room as saved and reconciled children of God because of this. We right now are feeling the fruits and effects of your resurrection in our lives. And we're going to feel it down into eternity. Even so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come soon. We want this truth that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then comes the end when Christ will make all things new. 
So even so, we pray, come Lord Jesus and make us faithful and fruitful in the meantime, living for your glory. Save those we love. Call them out of darkness. You have authority to give repentance and new birth and forgiveness of sin and life eternal. It's all at your right hand because you've been raised from the dead. We pray that you would give that to our friends in this room, in our families, in our homes, in our work environments, in our community, and in our city and in the world. Release your resurrection power on this earth more and more. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. May your name be made hallowed and precious. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. stand.
guests with us. Thanks again for being here. Um, appreciate you showing up. And if you have never filled out one of the guest cards in the front of the seat in front of you, we'd love for you to do that and drop it in um, one of the offering baskets in the back. Um, or you can give it to a pastor in the lobby. We'd love to just uh, follow up with you and see if there's any way we can serve or bless or help you in any way. Um, you don't have to fill out the whole card. If you just put your name and an email or a phone number to some way we can contact you, that'd be great. We promise not to hound you. We won't spam you. We won't come to your door. We won't do anything like that. We'll just follow up with you and see if there's any way we can, we can help you or minister to you in any way. So I want to make that available. Also, if, you're, if you've been here for a little while and you're a guest or if you're a new guest, we have a monthly pizza with the pastors event that we have started last month and we're having next Sunday. So if you are here and you're a guest and you just want to get connected, um, we'd love to have pizza with you. And that's just going to be an informal lunch. It's up there in that room in the left corner. Um, And all we do is eat pizza and talk. There's no sales pitch. There's no preaching. There's nothing like that. It's just hanging out and eating pizza and talking. So if you'd like to be a part of that, please uh, do that. Also, Belinda Faulkner, if everybody will turn around and look at that left-hand corner, we have some treats left over from TNT last night. So anybody needs some like brownies and cookies and other kinds of stuff, go back there and see her. She's taking like modest donations and you can take all that home and uh, enjoy it at, at, for Easter lunch. So please go back there and if you want to purchase any of that. Last thing, Mentor Kids Kentucky is an organization in our community that helps attach adults to um, children who need a mentor, whether that be either daughters or, or, or girls or boys, and they have an annual banquet. Well, our church has supports them, and we have two tables that we would like to fill. We have 14 spaces available. It's catered by Moonlight. It's at the Heinz Center. It's on Tuesday afternoon. You don't have to pay anything. All you have to do is show up. And if you'd be interested in coming to this on behalf of Heritage and supporting Mentor Kids by your presence, there's a sign-up sheet on the nursery desk out there on the right. So if you go out and you're on the right on the nursery desk, just sign your name to it. And uh, we'd love to have you there and, and a part of that. So again, it doesn't cost you anything, but your presence is appreciated. And I know it'll be a real encouragement to Mentor Kids um, Kentucky. So that's it. Let me leave you with this benediction. May the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered death and the grave and hell, give you what we've preached about this morning. Be encouraged by a fresh start, a bright future, a meaningful life, and a great mission that we've been called to be a part of. Now go. Remember, he is with you always, even to the end of the age. God bless you.